Welcome, welcome, everyone, to episode four of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. So we have Bill Irwin on today, who's a philosophy professor at King's College in Pennsylvania. And so Bill Irwin is the author of Little Siddhartha, which is a book that I absolutely adore. And I mean, I have a lot of things to say and a lot of soft comments on it. And obviously we're going to get into it. And he's also the author of The Simpsons and Philosophy, The Doe of Homer, and Seinfeld and Philosophy. Yeah. Um, so actually, I, I watched your uh, Google talk, actually, on, online. I looked you up, uh, and I saw you discussing uh, Simpsons and Philosophy with a gentleman there. And uh, it, was, it was very interesting to me. It was like my first introduction to you. I, I know that you're Leon's, uh, one of Leon's favorite authors. He, he couldn't tell me enough about Little Siddhartha. And um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting getting to know you. And well, I'm, I'm I'm honored to be on the on the podcast, and, and really grateful to be uh, to be speaking with you. I've been connected with Leon through Twitter for a good bit now, and uh, enjoyed the exchanges and discussions with him. And uh, it, it's great to see this uh, this podcast taking off for you. So I really appreciate it. No, thank you so much. And so the first thing that I wanted to start with is so the way that I actually met Bill on Twitter was through his book Little Siddhartha. So for those of you who know, so the book Siddhartha, the classic by Herman Hesse, is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite books of all time. So a long time ago, I was um, so I was kind of a, a Jungian in, in a sense, right? I absolutely love Carl Jung, and so um, so I discovered little well, I discovered Siddhartha by through the readings of Carl Jung, or through the writings of Carl Jung, mm -hmm. and so um, I absolutely fell in love with the book, and it meant a great deal to me. And so when I discovered Bill Irwin's book, I was like just absolutely floored. I couldn't believe that somebody actually wrote a sequel to it, and especially someone obviously as notable as a overwriter as Dr. Irwin. So um, the biggest question that I have, Bill, is um, so what, what inspired you to write Little Siddhartha? How did you come about the idea? Well, th th thanks, Leon. I'm not sure if I'm uh, that notable uh, of a writer, but, but uh, Siddhartha is obviously a great book, and it's meant a lot to a lot of people like you and like me. Uh, I first read it in, uh, in high school, and uh, I think it's a book that speaks very well to young people, and I've, I've found it continues to speak to me in different, different ways throughout different times in my life. But uh, I teach an Eastern philosophy course at King's College, and uh, I assign the book as one of the first things that we read in the course, even though uh, it's written by a Western author and it doesn't necessarily represent Buddhism and Hinduism in a completely faithful way. So I've read it and, and reread it many, many times uh, over the past 20 years with my students. And a question uh, about the book that's always lingered with me and I've sometimes used as a discussion prompt with students is what happens to Siddhartha's son? who read the book know that uh, late in the story he's introduced to a son uh, who he has and uh, he wants to keep the son with him uh, where he's uh, living a, a sort of very Spartan uh, ascetic ex existence uh, as a kind of a hermit and uh, he, uh, the son eventually has to leave, runs away uh, and uh, always wondered well how would the story continue with the son and so uh, at, at some point, I, I took the, uh, the chance of trying to put down my own thoughts and together a story about what happens to the son and sort of intertwine it with the uh, father's reaction and uh, taking it from there. Uh, maybe uh, just a, a question on the, uh, the recording, if you guys don't mind. I, I, hear, I hear an echo. I don't know if you guys hear that or if it's a problem in any way. Oh, interesting. Uh, from our end, we, we don't hear it. Um, should, should I have earphones in? Would that be the corrective? Or? Hmm. Um, if you if you want to give that a shot, uh, you, you could. Uh, from our end, we don't hear anything. Um, is it really bad of an echo? Is it? Uh, I, I don't hear it when you're speaking. I only hear it when I'm speaking. Mm. Yeah, because we definitely don't hear an echo with you or from you. Okay, well, so, so long as it's only me hearing myself echo, yeah. I, I can easily adjust to that. Okay. I didn't know it's a okay. problem on your end. Yeah. I hate that whenever that happens on the phone, actually, you hear your own self, you're like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely, I'll be like, oh, is this on speaker? Can you put it down or something? You know? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but, but I think as far as the recording goes, it would definitely be. Is it, is it manageable for you? Like, is it Yeah, oh, it definitely is. I okay. just didn't know. Uh, 
if it was if it was manifesting on your side as well, and if it was a problem, that's all. Okay. Okay. So, okay. And then, so in terms of Siddhartha, what was it about the book that impacted you? What was it? What was? It, what would you say were sort of the major existential lessons out of it? Right. So the the, the book uh, Hesse Siddhartha deals with the question of of who are you and and what is your true self, right? And it it tells the story. Of a, a boy raised as a privileged Brahmin in uh, ancient India, and he's learned all that he can from uh, his father and the Brahmins, and doesn't really feel like they have the answers, right, uh, about who he is and what his true self is, and so the the story sees him set out uh, on uh, a search for his true self, and uh, he joins and uh, quits uh, a group of samanas. He uh, does not join and follow the Buddha himself, and, and eventually uh, he uh, lives a life of uh, hedonic pleasure with a courtesan and working as a merchant before he eventually finds a, a spiritual path again. And that just really spoke to me as a, as a young man in high school. I uh, was raised Catholic, but I had lost my faith at a certain point in high school, and so I was really trying to figure out who I was and what my life was about, uh, if the answers that I had counted on in the past didn't speak to me anymore, and so I could really identify uh, with the young man, uh, and uh, I didn't make uh, quite the same mistakes that he made moving forward in my life from there, but I, I did make plenty of mistakes and uh, indulgences and overindulgences in, in various places. So when I, I revisited the book, I don't know, uh, 10, 15 years later when I started uh, when I started teaching at, uh, at King's College, I found that uh, it wasn't just a book that spoke to me as a, as a young man in high school. It spoke to me as uh, a youngish man, probably in my late 20s. Uh, at that point, having seen where I had uh, I had gone with my life and the changes I had gone through, and what I had rejected and accepted and come back to from the personal uh, crises, conflicts that it involved, and uh, in the in the past twenty years since, it's just been a very rich book to uh, to teach to to the students and to get their reactions to and to continue to reflect on. Uh, much of the story has to do with father and son relationships and uh, over the course of those years I became a father myself uh, my own father passed away my son was born my daughter was born and so really the uh, the book has uh, just a touchstone for me uh, and I read and reread it uh, continually yeah and what was so incredible to me about your book about the follow-up to Siddhartha little Siddhartha was the relationship between obviously the the kind of new Siddhartha and his son Raula, and so for me, I mean, for some people who know, I kind of had a very similar relationship with my own like well, my own stepfather, and so my own stepfather was actually highly narcissistic, and so it was such an important story for me in particular because for Raula, in a sense, I kind of identified with him when I was let's say from from that sort of age when I was kind of um, around give or take maybe around from 10 to 12 I mean because my parents later on ended up getting divorced and so for the longest time that I was sort of um, I was considered to be a very sort of shy and sensitive kid and so my stepfather was actually sort of kind of the definition of toxic masculinity and so <laughs> yeah so he never really kind of um, he never really accepted me as I was and so for him he always he persistently tried to change me and for him it was all about sort of attaining attaining sort of you know attaining girls attaining kind of accolades uh, kind of social status itself was the most important thing in life to him and so for me I was actually more in terms of kind of Raul I was more sort of toward, leaning toward the spiritual side and I had these deep existential questions about life and I for me it never made any sense how he didn't care about them so and he would pretty much tell me that I was wasting my time with this he's like this, this doesn't matter like these are answers that you'll never understand or that you'll never know and you're reading all of these books right you're essentially wasting your time whereas you could be sort of studying business so business was this huge thing for me absolutely for him it was all about the American dream and not only kind of um, not only making a good living for yourself but sort of being being your own boss so um the Which there's nothing wrong with right, right, in that sense. right. And but it, I hear you. He was really yeah. imposing that sort of reality. Yes, and and so and the, the the point of sort of the story that really resonated with me was the fact that it was very difficult for Siddhartha to really sort of be compassionate to Raoula or understanding in any sort of particular way. 
And so, you know, when I kind of when I think about the book, I often sort of think about what it was like for me then. And even in the story, as Raula kind of actually really ran away, it was it was for me it was this was something that I wanted to do repetitively. There were so many moments where I just felt like I didn't belong in my particular family. And so I wanted to ask you, in terms of the sort of relationship between father and son in the context of Siddhartha and Raoula, where did you come up with those ideas, especially for Siddhartha kind of being a highly narcissistic person and Raoula, in sort of contrast, being this really sweet kid? Right, right. So uh, maybe I'll, I'll fill in uh, the blanks a little bit for those who haven't uh, read my, my, my sequel, right? So Rahula. Uh, is sort of the grandson of the original Siddhartha character. The original Siddhartha character in uh, in the titular novel Siddhartha by by Hesse has a son uh, who is named after him, and that that's the little Siddhartha of my book. Uh, that uh, son runs away from Siddhartha in Hesse's novel, and, that, and that's the son who I wonder what happens to him, right? His father is trying to force him into a spiritual life, and he's an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old boy uh, being forced to live this lifestyle. So I, I imagine that what happens to him when he uh, returns to the world is that he totally rejects the ways of his father and uh, becomes a very materialistic, very merchant-oriented uh, person. Uh, which uh, is in some ways how Leon is describing his, his stepfather as being. And so what then happens, as I imagine in the story, is that uh, little Siddhartha, the son of the original Siddhartha, has his own son, uh, who he wants to raise in his own image as uh, a very dominant uh, merchant and uh, alpha male, I suppose you might say. And uh, the son, Rahula, uh, just uh, does not have that temperament and does not want to be that way, and as uh, uh, Leon suggests, eventually leaves home. And, and so just with that background in, in mind, uh, I, I reflect on, uh, on what it uh, is like for fathers and sons to make sense of one another. Uh, some, sometimes uh, the father uh, and son are quite alike, but, but no one uh, is exactly like their father uh, or uh, has a son uh, exactly like him. Uh, in my case, I had a much more fortunate uh, upbringing than it sounds like uh, Leon's circumstances were, although it really could have been different. Uh, it could have been pretty bad. My, my father uh, also was a businessman, uh, but... Uh, Fortunately for me, he uh, he didn't enjoy being a businessman. He he, uh, he really saw the grind and saw the pointlessness of a lot of it. And uh, really, the best advice uh, and permission he gave to me was to find something uh, that I love to do uh, and do that for a living, right? Whatever that might be. So I, I was really very liberated by that. But you know, there are other ways in which. My father was quite different from me, right? My father was six foot two. Uh, on a good day with the right shoes, I might hit five foot eight. Uh, <laughs> Same. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. My, my father had been a great dresser, you know, really could wear a three-piece suit and look, look the part. Uh, and I, I always, you know, liked grungy clothes before grunge was even a thing, that sort of thing, right? Uh, so I, I knew that there were ways in which uh, I, I was not who my father wanted me to be or would have ideally thought I was. I mean, he was a terrific athlete. I was an okay athlete at best. Uh, and while he did his best not to express disappointment in those sorts of things uh, that's the sort of disappointment that always comes out sideways wh whether you want it to or not and uh, my own son is now 15 years old and you know right from the beginning there's the temptation to want your son to be like you and in some ways to relive your life through your son correct your own mistakes through your son and so I've, I've just been very mindful of that uh, from the very beginning with my own son and, uh, you know, with greater and lesser degrees of success, I'm sure he'll have his own memoir <laughs> to write about it for therapy sessions to fill with it uh, as, as he gets older. Uh, I certainly haven't been, uh, you know, completely successful in that way. Uh, but, but that's been my striving, and I, I suppose uh, it, it's, it's been 
it, it took me a long time to want to write this book uh, because it, it, it took me to the point where I really had my own son and could start to reflect back and, and, and see the ways in which uh, my father had to struggle and, and bite his tongue uh, with me and gently steer me certain ways and experience disappointment with me in certain ways uh, that really made me realize that uh, I have to let my son be who he wants to be and do what he wants to do within reason, of course. Uh, but uh, he just is not me and I am not him. And, and that's the way it's supposed to be. I see. So do you find yourself uh, resisting that urge to kind of uh, steer him in um, a direction that you think would be helpful to him? Or do you still do that? But in a, it sounds like you do it in a very mindful way in the sense that like you're very aware of your behavior towards him, but you still do know a lot of these things that could be very helpful to him. Yeah, it, 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 that, that's a nice way of putting it, doing it in, in a mindful way. I hope I do that. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that uh, no matter how hard I try, I nonetheless have a degree of failure with this. We all mess up our kids no matter how uh, well-intentioned we are and how generally successful we are. But I liken it to uh, a classroom discussion where if it's going the way that I want, I'm steering without touching the wheel. I guess that's a, a driving metaphor put onto a classroom discussion framework that I'm now trying to import back to a parenting situation. So the metaphors have gotten terribly mixed, right? But uh, obviously, uh, I encourage him uh, to do well in school, to be kind, to be compassionate, these sorts of things, uh, without uh, directly mandating them in the way that, uh, you know, can produce the backlash. Uh, to me, that that's the interesting thing, right? That That's the drama that I, I frame in the novel uh, Little Siddhartha, is that when you try to push your... Uh, son, and I'm sure it, uh, it is true of uh, children in general, right, uh, as well with daughters. Uh, when you try to push your children a certain direction, it, it just can uh, backfire on you. They may go along for a certain uh, part of the ride, but then they tend to rebel and go in the opposite direction. So it's kind of a bit of reverse psychology, as they might say, by not pushing too hard in a particular direction. I mean, I've seen this in some cases with uh, with friends and people I know uh, who've insisted that children be devoted to uh, a particular sport uh, and, you know, that they go along with that for a, a certain number of years because they have an aptitude for it and pleases their parents, but then uh, eventually uh, they become resentful of it and uh, what, what's left of the relationship and, and how much uh, hurt there is after the child rebels. I guess maybe I've, I've uh, tried to uh, smooth the road uh, that is the path of, uh, of least resistance in the sense of not insisting so hard on something. And so then if what I want to or desire in my head or think is good, uh, I can more readily deal with the, uh, with the rejection. I don't know. So is it about um, kind of so that, for example, in this, I don't want to get too personal, but let's say in the case of your son, you want. Yeah him to his decisions to be his own but still if they could align with these um, higher ideas that would be good but to push them would kind of maybe cause him to rebel let's say because it's not his own idea maybe for some time he'd go with it but then um, ultimately it has to be like as if he chose this path himself yeah I, I think that that's a good way of putting it so uh, one area where, where that has been uh, an, an issue that I'm comfortable uh, talking about is with regard to religion. Uh, I'm not religious my, myself. Uh, I consider myself to be uh, kind of an honest atheist. Uh, so questioning and like any uh, believer has moments of doubt. I have some moments of doubt in, uh, in my atheism. Uh, my wife uh, is Christian and goes to church and uh, uh, the children were raised going to church with her. Uh, that wasn't something that I was particularly happy about, but I, I didn't fight it uh, all that hard, so long as we could have open dialogue about it at home, etc. And so that, that, that's been interesting, 
my, my son uh, at this point uh, has ceased going to church, which is what I, what I wanted all along. <laughs> <laughs> <I> work. <laughs> right? Uh, so uh, my, my daughter is 13, and uh, she still does go to church, and, and, and that's fine. We, we had an interesting uh, moment with her just uh, recently where she's been confirmed, and uh, she had to write a, a belief statement for that. And, and she wrote a belief statement for which she was uh, roundly praised at, at her church. And the belief statement basically said, uh, I don't know what I believe, uh, which I think is great. Uh, and it turned out that a lot of people in her church did as well. The, the only mystery to me is, is how they managed to go ahead and confirm someone who, who said that they didn't know what they believed. But they, I guess that's up to them. And, that, and that, that's... Uh, in some ways, uh, praiseworthy that they, they would be uh, willing to uh, put their, their stamp of approval on that. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, like when it comes to something like religion, I, I, I would like my, my children to come to the conclusion that uh, they don't believe uh, in, in any uh, God or subscribe to any organized religion. But I, I think probably the worst way for me to get them to do that would be to insist that uh, they uh, not believe in God or uh, uh, subscribe to any organized religion. But uh, who knows? Uh, you know, if, if they come to sincere belief and sincere faith, that's fine with me as well. And so just to return to little Siddhanta, I really wanted to focus on what to me was sort of the crux of the book and I would say undoubtedly the most profound aspect of it. And this is something that I spoke to Bill about personally, that um, in terms of my own relationship with my father, it was the part of the book that essentially helped me the most. And so, that, and this is sort of in the context of, you know, I would say maybe even several years of therapy that um, I felt that this sort of notion and this kind of, the, the dynamic between them in the book was even more important to me in a way in terms of kind of, um, in connection to even the therapy sessions that I had. And so the quote from the book exactly, or kind of specifically, is to understand all is to forgive all. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. And what did that mean to you, kind of, let's say, personally, but then also in the context of the relationship with Siddhartha and Raoulo? Uh, yeah, I, I wish I could take credit for, for that quote, but uh, it, it's, it's not mine uh, originally. It's, it's kind of a saying, I suppose. And I think it originates in, in the French, and I won't even try to pronounce the French because my, my little bit of French is, is so bad. Uh, but basically, right, to comprehend all is to forgive all. And uh, yeah, to, to me, uh, and, and that, that, that fits with, uh, again, not even being religious myself, a, a prayer that, uh, that I like quite a bit, the, uh, the, the prayer of St. Francis Assisi, which has the, the powerful line, uh, that seeking first to understand and then to be understood. Uh, and so it, it, understanding all and then forgiving all basically in, in this context means that, uh, well, uh, people have motives and, and uh, hurts and struggles all their own that we don't see, right? Uh, we're always comparing our insides to other people's outsides and when we do this with somebody who, uh, well, when forgiveness seems most warranted is when the person, right, has, uh, has hurt us, has harmed us. And all we can usually see when somebody's hurt or harmed us is that, that you know, they are uh, feeling good and they are in a position of power. And here we are uh, in a position uh, of weakness and in a position of, of having been harmed. And uh, it's, you know, forgiveness is, is sort of an easy thing to, to preach when it's directed at, uh, at, at people who really haven't hurt us that much or uh, who aren't in a position of power over us or uh, even more so people who express uh, some regret, some sorrow, some remorse for having done some harm to us. The, the real challenge for, for forgiveness and for compassion, as far as I can see, uh, is for the person who's actually in a position of power over us, uh, or at least was at some time uh, in the past, and uh, doesn't express any remorse or uh, sorrow for the hurt, the harm 
that they've caused us. But the idea then that, that I see uh, in this idea of, of to understand all is, is to forgive all, is that uh, if we could realize the struggle, the fight uh, that's going on inside the, uh, the person who's been our tormentor uh, or uh, the cause of our harm, uh, we could forgive it. Uh, and of course, that person might not want us to go to them and express the words of forgiveness. After all, they haven't likely expressed uh, any sense of having done wrong or having done harm themselves. But there's a way, I think, of making peace uh, with those who harmed us, even when uh, they haven't actually expressed that, that sorrow or regret that we might wish they had. And I thought that that's such an important part of the story was, uh, I mean, the context that you get of Siddhartha's life. Because, I mean, obviously, Raul was definitely the most sympathetic character of the story, but you also understood what Siddhartha went through and sort of being abandoned in a way by his own father, only to discover that his father, obviously, like him, wanted him to sort of fit a particular mold, too. Right? That, that's it, right? The, the, the irony, uh, generationally, in, in the story that I tell, right, is that the grandson turns out to be just the way... Uh, that the grandfather, yeah. the original Siddhartha, would have wanted, right? Yeah. So, uh, skipped a generation in a way, and, th and this happens, right? We're not always uh, a great match temperamentally for our own sons or our own fathers, and uh, yeah, uh, so I'm not sure what more to say there. Yeah. And I mean, and I thought one of the most important aspects of it was the, the two roles, right? The roles of uh, Kamala and the roles of Raula's mother. I mean, it seems like the, the both of them were essentially the backbones of their families, especially when these sort of two other men, these two Siddharthas, were fairly hard-headed. And so I kind of wanted to know, what did you think of them in sort of in the context of their own sort of upbringing and how, in, in a way, they helped them feel accepted and obviously and kind of they maintained their sanity. I mean, they were, I would say, the, in a way, the sole providers for their children are definitely the main providers for their children. Yeah, that, that in a way, that's uh, a sort of corrective that I wanted to make from from the original. Not that uh, you know I should really try to touch uh, Hess's original, but uh, the, the the mother uh, Siddhartha's own mother is, is really not mentioned uh, except in passing in the original. Uh, we do get some reflection on how his own father must have been hurt. Uh, by his leaving, right? And this is something that only dawns on the original Siddhartha near the very end of the novel where he sees his own face reflected in the river and he's come to physically resemble uh, his father when, his, when he had left home. And he realizes that having not gone home after all these years, the, the hurt that he caused his father. Uh, well, what about his mother, right? And, and so I, I, I tried to make uh, a stronger mother figure in the... Uh, uh, in the sequel that I wrote, but I, I think you're right. The, the, the mother, uh, the wife turns out to be really the backbone. Uh, in the original uh, Siddhartha story, uh, Kamala plays an, an important role, but, but uh, one of the, it, it, it works perfectly well in the story, but one of the uh, unfortunate things when you simply speak about the story in the abstract anyway, is that Kamala is a courtesan, and so uh, the uh, I don't I don't want to say necessarily that there's an element of misogyny there, but, but there certainly uh, is a tinge to her character that uh, you know m maybe uh, considering she's the only prominent female uh, character in the original novel that uh, we want to show something else in addition as the story continues. Mm -hmm. And what would you say are sort of some of the main existential lessons of Little Siddhartha? some of the sort of universal truths that people can take away when reading it? Well, uh, I, I hesitate to prescribe, uh, but in terms of the questions, right, uh, it continues the, the questioning that the original novel uh, raises about who are you, right? What is your true self, and, uh, and how do you go about discovering that, right? And, and I suppose rather than uh, prescribing a single answer, to it, uh, the uh, like the original, my sequel, Little Siddhartha, highlights the value of the quest itself, uh, and not simply accepting the answers that are given to you from family, from culture, from religion. Right? This is uh, the, the problem in a way in the original, and it's a problem uh, in the sequel, as I tell it as well. Right? Because uh, we had. Uh, 
little Siddhartha grown uh, and becoming a successful merchant, finding who he wants to be. And it really uh, fits with his temperament and, uh, and, and his ego to be a merchant, a successful merchant. And he thinks that's really the answer to life's uh, problem and, and, and who someone should be. But it turns out not to be the, the right prescription, the right life for his son, although he tries to uh, force it on. So I suppose the message, rather than uh, an answer that, that I hope the book delivers, uh, is that the, uh, the answer to the question of, of who you are is only to be found uh, in your own search. Uh, and that may call for breaking away from your family, your culture, your religion, or it may not. Right? Uh, it may be, uh, and this certainly does happen, uh, that you find the right answers for you within uh, your own whatever it may be, culture, religion, family. Bill, would you say that um, the search for who you truly are involves, let's say, uh, ego death, uh, like a process of um, dying? To, I mean, uh, this is really, sorry, it's related to your article that I read. And uh, I read in there, oh, okay, dying to who you were, to um, constantly, like, to, to die and then... Um, you then reconstitute yourself and become something else entirely. It's like this process of um, always kind of not a, not becoming this rigid, stable structure, but you're always in this kind of becoming phase. And um, it is interesting to me uh, that it kind of, the reason why it resonates to me uh, is because it has to do with that whole process of ego death. And I was wondering, what's your opinion on uh, um, that? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that question, Alan. Uh, so you, you're referring to uh, a blog piece that I did on Psychology Today, which is partly a, a book review of John Cagg's book, uh, Hiking with Nietzsche. And uh, Cagg is great. Uh, I, I'd recommend him for a uh, guest on uh, on your podcast for sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, so... Part of what Cag muses on in his book, Hiking with Nietzsche, is the uh, sort of oracular phrase that uh, that Nietzsche takes from the Greek poet Pindar, become who you are, uh, which is, it sounds like the sort of uh, puzzling nonsense that would have driven uh, Leon's father up a wall, right? <laughs> who you are, what the hell is that, right? Either you are who you are or you're not, and you can't become who you are, what sense does that make, right? Uh, but uh, the way in which CAG puzzles it through with Nietzsche, in a way, has to do with uh, with ego death, uh, as you put it, right? That we have to uh, be willing to uh, change to the point where we're not what we were, and yet it's still faithful uh, to what we uh, what we want to be. I'm, I'm probably not giving it. Uh, the best, uh, the best phrasing there. But uh, Cag himself, in his own book, and this is the reason I ended up blogging about it, references Hesse and, in particular, uh, the novel Siddhartha. And one of the things I always liked about Hesse's novel is that it has these metaphorical uh, reincarnations within it. Right? It, it's set in a Hindu and Buddhist context. Uh, both religions, uh, of course, subscribe to reincarnation, but we don't get literal death and rebirth so much uh, in Hesse's novel so much as we get uh, we get a metaphorical uh, death where uh, Siddhartha dies to his uh, childhood as a Brahmin and becomes a wandering ascetic Samana uh, dies to that and uh, becomes a worldly merchant, dies to that and becomes a sort of uh, hermit uh, again uh, in each place uh, he becomes something very new, but he also brings with him the uh, the value of what he learned before, right? And so uh, this this is very important, right? We we sometimes uh, give ourselves credit for change, where the change really uh, isn't anything substantial, right? Uh, in in my life, uh, I referenced some of this very obliquely. Uh, before, uh, you know, I've, I've been through some some radical uh, changes, uh, the way, ways in which my, my life uh, has, has mirrored Siddhartha's in some ways is that I did have my own period of, 
of great excessive uh, indulgence. And uh, about 22 years ago, uh, I got sober. I've been sober ever since. And, and that, uh, to me, has been a, a major change. Uh, for me, becoming a parent was uh, a major change. These were not just kind of uh, little changes where I'm very much the same as what I am, but now I'm playing a new role uh, as well in, in order to really meet those new selves. Uh, I had to carry what was worthwhile from the past forward into becoming something new. And so that, that's sort of what uh, is referenced by this becoming who you are that uh, CAG deals with in, in discussing Nietzsche and that I uh, grapple with a little bit in that blog. You know, I was, I've been wondering about this for a while. Um, the, the concept of ego death, of uh, uh, dying to who you once were, or even in terms of, um, let's say, people are taking on uh, newer challenges, and let's say, you know, they're, they're kind of, uh, it's something new they've never done before. We were talking about this last week, actually, uh, uh, overcoming uh, self-imposed barriers to success. And how people kind of go through this resistance when taking on a new task, and even if they objectively know it's good for them, they uh, might, you know, feel these feelings of discomfort while undertaking it, and then that may cause them not to try to undertake that task. But then, what's interesting about this concept of ego death, or not, or rather, what's interesting about it is that if this was something that was, I mean, it is pretty mainstream. I mean, I know about it from, let's say, going online and stuff. But I would say, uh, I guess my question is, what do you think maybe we could do, uh, either uh, from your end or maybe what we could do uh, since we're podcasting, to kind of make this concept of, of ego death and becoming more of a mainstream thing? Because that's really my passion, which is trying to get a lot of these uh, topics, which I feel are very important for people to understand but make it digestible um, to the masses because I noticed it's all about kind of um, like delivery is so important how you word things is so important and then how someone from an, like an audience perspective how they resonate with what you say so um, I don't know um, what do you yeah. think? Yeah. It, it, it's really tricky right uh, and it's particularly tricky for uh, most of us giving our cultural background uh, from a Buddhist perspective, right, which is uh, so much of the orientation uh, that, uh, you know, Hesse's character is growing into, there, there is no self, right? Uh, and this is one of the sort of more esoteric subjects that I grapple with a little bit in, in the novel, right? Uh, if from a strictly Buddhist perspective, there is no self, then what does it mean to set out uh, to try to discover the true self? Uh, there was none to begin with, in a way. Uh, if we understand what we mean by the self as, as something about us that's permanent and identical across time, well, when we, we look within, we really are hard-pressed to find what that is, right? Uh, we're uh, afraid of change uh, to a, a large degree, right? Change is, uh, is scary. It uh, disrupts stability. It disrupts security. Uh, nonetheless, uh, most of us, uh, if not all of us, want to change in various ways, become uh, something more, something, uh, something different. And so I, I think we're at a disadvantage in, in many places in our in our starting place. So in, in a way that that's not all that uh, that helpful uh, to say that our starting place is uh, is a disadvantage, except to say that we have to be compassionate toward ourselves and in, uh, in realizing that. And uh, I I think one of the uh, one one of the lines I've uh, I've adopted for myself uh, about getting myself to to do something difficult. That, uh, that that I'm looking at uh, is a, is a line from a friend of mine who is uh, was a marine. I guess this is a common uh, phrase in the military, but he always says, "Embrace the suck." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? You know that one, right? You, where you know what what looks like it will suck and maybe will suck. If you throw yourself into it, uh, you actually can find uh, that you enjoy it. Right? Psych yourself up. 
uh, right, to go out for a run in the rain, even though that looks like it will suck, you know, convince yourself that uh, you will uh, enjoy that somehow and you throw yourself into it. And uh, I, I think back about uh, summers uh, between college, years in college, I, I worked uh, uh, in a, a sort of not a factory setting, but it was a, a basically truckloading. Uh, and, and you would get used to one particular task, whatever it was. Uh, and uh, I should speak for myself. I'd get uh, used to one particular task, whatever it was, and feel like I'm finally doing this uh, at a level that doesn't make me look like a, like an idiot here, right? Uh, that I seem somewhat confident, and I definitely don't want to do that other thing that I see those those guys doing. Uh, and then I'd be made to switch to do that, right? And I would be totally uh, uncomfortable. But then I'd find uh, that the, the challenge of, uh, of learning to do it somehow competently uh, was enjoyable. And then I wouldn't want to move on to whatever the next thing was. So, I mean, that, that, that's, that's sort of something that I think many people can identify with in, in workplace scenarios where you become comfortable in, in doing one particular kind of thing and, and don't want to do something else uh, but then you find you enjoy the novelty of, of the new thing uh, all the more when, when you get to doing it I, I think the other thing and this is maybe getting closer to what uh, what practical uh, advice you were searching for and it may not uh, be any kind of a silver bullet but one, one thing I find is that people don't like to be labeled and, and rightly so right none of us is whatever it may be, uh, simply uh, a father, a teacher, a therapist, a mother, a daughter, uh, an American, uh, we, we, you know, that may be a role that we play, uh, and, and those actually may even be not the best uh, examples, because many of those are, are things people take pride uh, in wearing the label of, but we, we don't want to be reduced for example, to a political label or to a religious label. Uh, and when it becomes more negative, right? Uh, like, for example, uh, when I find myself uh, labeling somebody in my own mind, that guy's a jerk, or sometimes, you know, the description is a lot more colorful than that. Uh, I, I try to correct it and say uh, that uh, that guy's acting like a jerk right now, right? But he's not really a jerk, right? Uh, and so when, when I think about things about myself, right, like I'm, I'm carrying about 15 pounds uh, that uh, I shouldn't be carrying right now, optimally, uh, I could label myself as fat or lazy or whatever like that, right? But uh, that's not particularly helpful uh, with motivating myself, right? Because uh, in a way that that just uh, gives me permission to simply uh, slack back into that. Well, what, what is a, a fat guy but a fat guy? What is a lazy guy but a lazy guy, right? How can I do anything differently, right? But when I realize that I'm, I'm none of those things, right, uh, then then I realize that I have not only uh, the freedom but the, uh, the responsibility uh, to make those kind of changes. And, and, and this is something that comes up as well in the, uh, the article that uh, Alan was referencing. And it's, uh, it's an existentialist insight, which I know is uh, uh, right up uh, Leon's alley, right? Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre talks about the way in which no one really is a thing, right? And, and the labels that we put on ourselves and get put on ourselves uh, really are constricting and they're not true. And so Sartre is one of his famous examples is uh, the person who is a waiter. Uh, and, uh, you know, anybody who has waited tables probably can identify with not really wanting to be a waiter and be looked at and treated as simply a waiter and nothing but a waiter, right? Uh, people want to be treated uh, with courtesy and respect uh, when they are waiting tables. They're not simply a waiter to be summoned uh, as a thing like uh, an elevator might be summoned. Uh, nor is it helpful. Uh, it may help us to get through the day or get through the shift if we're a waiter to simply think of ourselves as I'm just a waiter and playing that role. But in no role uh, and with no label that's put upon us, are we ever actually that thing? Uh, and if it's a negative role, right, uh, that we're either putting upon ourselves or that others are putting upon us, 
not only do we have the freedom, but we really have the responsibility uh, to reject it uh, and to move beyond it and to create ourselves uh, as something new. And, and I guess this is uh, some of what uh, I'm taking from this idea of, of become who you are is that it's, uh, it's not a finished process. It never is, right? We're all always works in progress. We're always, in that sense, becoming who we are uh, and leaving behind something uh, of the past that doesn't work and carrying forward what does work uh, and hopefully forming a new synthesis. It's so interesting because we just recently did a show on labeling. Well, at least partially speaking. Yeah, part of last week. Yeah, and so we focused on Albert Ellis and REBT therapy and his sort of disdain of all labels, whether positive or negative. And so for Ellis, he just said essentially that it never made sense to label yourself as anything, whether let's say you were beautiful, intelligent, anything even positive. Because for him, essentially, it's like if you're if you're this particularly good thing, that means you have to be this good thing, generally speaking, and globally in every single context. So for Albert Ellis, he said, okay, look, you know, we already know the difficulties of the negative labels, but the thing is with the positive labels, what that tends what that tends to cause is because they're so context dependent and so sort of time dependent, is that you have to be that thing in every single context, and if you aren't, that essentially leads to depression, that leads to anxiety, and philosophically speaking, no label can actually be defended because if let's say you're hypothetically speaking even a waiter you have to always be a waiter that has to be an inherent part of who you are and it, it isn't right or at least and it certainly doesn't have to be and for the most part there are very few people that actually stick with a particular label even for the majority of their lives and so for Ellis this idea was that essentially that just very and very Buddhist and Albert Ellis was essentially influenced by the existentialist especially and even Buddhist thinking where he said in terms of the labels in terms of who we are as people the reason why they don't make sense is because we're always changing and we're always growing and even as importantly we're always adapting to our sort of environment and so when it comes to sort of labels and it comes to kind of being defined by a particular thing it's very easy to get bogged down in it and it's very easy to tell yourself well if i'm this particular thing then i guess that's all i can be ever right and i can tell you obviously even kind of in my therapy sessions that that's never the case i see people sort of grow and progress and become whatever it is most of the time that they want to be obviously within the sort of context of like uh as Sartre would have called it you know existential freedom and so it's so interesting how these concepts are all sort of linked together and how we all touch on very similar <laughs> ideas here. And uh, the way I simplify it, even though it's not necessary to simplify it, but just for fun, mm -hmm. um, just as simple as I am precedes I am this or that. Mm -hmm. There you go. <laughs> Honestly, you don't need to really, I mean, you could, you could, you want to elaborate, you do want to break it down, but say uh, somebody just wanted to make it simple for themselves, like, okay. I am not this label, I'm not that label, yeah. I, I just am. You, if you want to uh, refer to um, Eastern philosophy, let's say, um, you could say, okay, I am, you don't have to get spiritual about it. If you like, you can, if mm -hmm. you, it's fine, but just use the practical parts of this. Yeah. Uh, like, I am just consciousness, I'm just aware, yeah. I'm just uh, this, uh, just attention, you know? And then mm -hmm. anything else extra is perhaps something you might be identifying with and making into who you are, which, you know, that could lead to uh, a lot of good things, but also a lot of bad things, kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah, and, and so, and what we touched on last week was this idea that essentially the labels in themselves aren't altogether a bad thing, but labeling what? So if you're labeling yourself and your whole sort of being, then that's negative and philosophically, again, indefensible. But when we're talking about labeling thoughts, feelings, and actions in terms of how conducive they are or aren't to our success, then that's a wonderful thing. So if you were to say something like, let's say this action was a failure or this action resulted in a failure i would say absolutely it absolutely did right so let's sort of go back to the drawing board and figure out what we could do differently but are you a failure i mean if the answer is yes you would definitely have a hard time proving it because globally speaking i would ask how in the world can you be a failure all the time everywhere how could you have never yeah, ever yeah. right never ever have achieved any sort of form of success and obviously that's impossible yeah, no, th this is great, and, and, it, and you, you really highlight well what uh, I've thought for a long time, the way in which some, all these different uh, streams of, uh, of the intellectual tradition come together, right? The, uh, the Buddhist, the existentialist, the Stoic, uh, and uh, so much of this manifested in, uh, in psychology, right? Uh, Albert Ellis and cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, and all for the good. 
So, and lastly, before I think we have about maybe nine minutes left. So I also wanted to ask you about your new book about sort of questioning God. And so it seemed really interesting. Would you be okay with telling our audience a little bit about it? Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking. Uh, so I had, uh, in passing before, mentioned describing myself as an honest atheist, uh, which by which I really mean somebody who questions uh, his or her uh, atheism, doesn't take it as a, as a settled fact. And the, uh, the title of the book is, uh, is God is a Question, Not an Answer, Finding Common Ground in Our Uncertainty. It actually grew out of uh, a New York Times uh, opinion piece that I had written. People could find that uh, free uh, on, uh, on the Internet uh, through the New York Times if they'd like to read it. It's the same title, God is a Question, Not an Answer. And uh, I was just basically making the case that um, as someone who is an honest believer uh, rec recognizes that faith and doubt go hand in hand, right, that it really isn't even faith if there is no doubt that goes along with it, so too uh, on the uh, other end of the spectrum, uh, the honest atheist needs to say that uh, it's possible that uh, I could be wrong, no matter how much I think I have uh, el eliminated uh, certain likelihoods and possibilities, there's always the possibility uh, that it could be mistaken about things. And so I conceive of, uh, of belief as uh, along uh, a continuum uh, of certainty where we can never really justifiably arrive at 100% certainty for or against uh, when it comes to the issue of God. And uh, yeah, so that, that's, that's the, the gist uh, of the book. And uh, I, I think hopefully... Uh, it's a call for uh, for cooling temperatures and tempers and uh, mm -hmm. finding common dialogue uh, across uh, religious disagreement or theistic atheistic disagreement. Yeah. Uh, is it out now or is it? Just... It's. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay, I'm picking it up. <laughs> and, and, and so and, and it's so interesting because I mean, interestingly enough, I think academically speaking that. Although, let's say, and I am an atheist as well, but I think that a lot of us sort of view it, it presented in such a way as to let people know that we understand that it's likely, that, or rather that it's unlikely that, let's say, a being that, they, you know, that they, we call God exists. And so, um, Bill, have you ever read by any chance John Mackey's The Miracle of Theism, Arguments for and Against the Existence of God? I've, I've not read it, no. Oh, so it's, it's a wonderful book. So, um, so um, John Mackey was this wonderful uh, philosophy professor at Oxford, at Oxford. And so he wrote this book essentially outlining the arguments, the sort of mainstream, not, well, yeah, mainstream, like, academically speaking, mm -hmm. kind of the most notable arguments for God, obviously in kind of the philosophical tradition, and all of the arguments against God. And so in the end of the book, because Mackey is obviously, for, well, I mean, he's an atheist, so he essentially presents this sort of mega argument against the existence of God. But he, he sort of carefully notes that it's not that this disproves the existence of God, but what it shows that if we put all of the arguments and well, the major philosophical arguments against God together, that it makes it highly unlikely that there is a God. And so I thought Mackey just in that book handled the, 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 just the topic masterfully. And so, obviously, it's a bit different when we kind of talk about mainstream atheism and maybe even like people like Richard Dawkins. So, I did yeah. a little bit more sort of fundamental and militant. But um, interestingly, the God delusion is actually based on Mackey's The Miracle of Theism. But Mackey doesn't go so far as to say that we know 100% that God doesn't exist. But he says that it's very, very, very unlikely based on the facts and the sort of science and everything that we do particularly know in that kind of context. Right, right. That, that, that sounds much closer to where I come down on this. And, and the, actually, the reason that, that I wrote the book, I, I didn't have plans to, to write this book at all, uh, but I had writ written the opinion piece and uh, I got berated and uh, stormed with, with negative commentary. And to my surprise, it wasn't coming from uh, the Bible Belt telling me I was going to hell. It was coming mostly from, from militant atheists telling me, all kinds of things about how I didn't know what I was talking about. And, uh, of course, in a, in a short opinion piece, I didn't have uh, every base covered or every term defined, etc. So, like, in a way, uh, all of the negative comments became my way of responding. Uh, well, they gave me the opportunity to respond and, and, and put together uh, a short book. Uh, but that, th this topic, and I was reminded of this, uh, Leon, as, as you were speaking, uh, dovetails into our discussion of labels, right? Uh, I, I choose to, to label myself as 
an honest atheist, but uh, with the fluidity uh, in mind that uh, uh, I, I could uh, someday be back in the uh, the realm of uh, what I might consider instead agnostic or uh, actually even a religious believer. And uh, some of the negative comments that, that I received uh, were telling me you're not an atheist at all, you're simply an agnostic. <laughs> And well, I mean, it depends on, on, on how you define the terms, right? Uh, and I don't believe that I'm uh, an atheist or an honest atheist in the way that a chair is a chair, right? This was sort of Sartre's point that we're not things. Uh, it's just simply a convenient label to describe where my, uh, my thought is at the moment. And I recognize I may shift on this uh, in any possible number of ways in the future. So relax a little bit, uh, and uh, when it comes in particular to uh, to religion and politics and things like this, uh, a label doesn't mean that you necessarily have to uh, be uh, any kind of thing or stay stable with uh, views and positions for the rest of your life, and it mean doesn't mean that you should demand anybody else does either, but uh, but allow it to be simply a placeholder, an indicator uh, that's fluid and up for change. Right, and if one were to be intellectually honest, I would say that that's the only sort of way to perceive things and the only way to kind of behave toward the world. Because, um, I mean, in terms of science, that is what science is supposed to be. And I remember the famous debate on evolution between Ken Ham and Bill Nye. And so the, both of them were posed the same question. And they said, what would make you change your perspective? Ken Ham said nothing, and Bill Nye said evidence, right? And that's exactly as it's supposed to be. So technically speaking, we're essentially kind of going through the world, and we think we know what we know. And there's a high likelihood that what we know is absolutely true. Like, especially when it comes to the Big Bang, when it comes to evolution, and even when it comes to the existence of God. So we know that it's very highly likely that, let's say, the first two things are true, and the latter isn't. But the thing is that, yeah, I mean, that's sort of how life is. And in terms of intellectual honesty, if we were to be presented with counter evidence, if we were to be honest, and if we were to be actual sort of academics, or let's say honest in terms of our search for truth, then yeah, we would have to accept it, whichever way it goes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's important to highlight every single perspective and point of view on the matter. Take a look at every single uh, position and then kind of integrate as best as you can from all those positions what is what is true or not true. Yeah. And evidence is very important. You can't, I mean, I understand, uh, like from, I can be sympathetic to somebody who is religious and, for instance, has a, a deep uh, relationship or inner world where they feel this connection mm. that's completely fine I respect that please you know I, do as you will uh, the problem with a lot of religious beliefs is when there are people who will take it to another level where they'll actually either impose it on other people right. or act also in violent ways as well that happens and also uh, could just be easily just kind of would just not want to be around people who are not religious right. and kind of it, it, it kind of separates us more than unifies us yeah. Yeah. and just um, obviously because we're kind of already pretty much out of time just to wrap things up though is there anything else that you wanted our audience to know no uh, well I, I'm always glad to, to hear from people uh, who have uh, listened to the podcast or have read something uh, that I've written whether it be little Siddhartha and uh, a couple of the nice things that, that I've heard about little Siddhartha, and I don't know uh, if they're true, but certainly if anybody uh, is reading and uh, has this reaction or uh, another, positive or negative, but uh, the two of the more gratifying comments that, that I've gotten is that some people have, uh, have said that uh, the voice uh, of Siddhartha seems, uh, of Hesse seems captured in, in the sequel, that they, they could at least for moments forget that they were reading something written by Bill Irwin and think that it was actually uh, a lost sequel by Hesse. Yeah, I, I had that experience too, by the way. Oh. It, it, really, it felt like a, it's such a smooth transition, yeah. Well, thank you. Without meaning to fish for compliments, yeah. I, I, I didn't appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, and then uh, I'll tell you what, one thing I didn't think uh, about the, the book itself, but some people have told me uh, they had the, the other experiences. Uh, that I, I thought of it simply as a sequel and, and that it wouldn't really make sense uh, unless you had read the original. But uh, some people uh, have told me that they've read it without uh, having read the original. 
And really, I tell you, read the original. And if you have to read one or the other, read the original. But if somehow you foolishly read my book and haven't read the original, you, you may find that it actually uh, still makes sense and still can be read uh, somewhat profitably. So I don't know. Uh, but I, I, I guess uh, in closing, uh, I'm just always glad to hear from anybody. You can catch me on uh, on Twitter or Facebook or find my email address and my website very easily by, by just Googling uh, William Irwin, I-R-W-I-N. And uh, uh, always appreciate a good conversation and, and hearing from people with, uh, with different points of view. Yeah. And, and I definitely ask all of our audience members, if, if for, for people who love, for you guys who love literature, who love sort of existential philosophy and just any sort of deep thought, to please pick up Little Siddharth. I think that you guys would absolutely love this book because in all honesty, and I don't say this with any sort of exaggeration, it literally changed my life. And get the new book. <laughs> the <laughs> I am picking it up right after this. Cool. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Brian. It's been a pleasure. All right. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everybody, for watching.